The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to Christ. be to Christ. Thank you, Ellen. Appreciate that. Good morning, everybody. So, um, so when we sang that song just a minute ago, Enemies, uh, Andy uh, Osenga, who's leading us this morning, uh, said you may not have heard this song yet, and that's because the song didn't exist two weeks ago. Andy actually wrote this song for this service uh, as a service to the church and as an expression of his own response to the text I'm about to preach. And so if you get a chance to say thanks to Andy, that was a special gift to our community. Um, and he'll be around afterwards, so you can, you can do that personally if you like. Um, Outrage. That's our, that's our subject today. Uh, this is going to be really fun, y'all. I'm going I'm to uh, try to get through this. I mean, let's just, let's just own the elephant in the room. This isn't an easy passage. Uh, it's terrifying. It's disorienting. Um, part of us wants to say, seriously, uh, you cannot be serious that, that this is where you… Jesus couldn't have really meant that. What did He really mean? I know He said this, but what did He really mean? What he meant was love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. He meant that. Uh, and maybe this is part of why Christianity, uh, according to C.S. Lewis, has to be true because, as Lewis said, no person in their right mind would invent this stuff unless that person in his right mind is the God-man Jesus Christ himself. So this is the weekend that we commemorate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a holiday weekend, but it's also a, a very sobering uh, weekend as we remember uh, one particular movement led by this man of what you could call non-violent, non-retaliatory resistance to wrongheadedness and injury. And it's the very same kind of thing that we're being invited to consider today. So one of the reasons, back to C.S. Lewis, one of the reasons why he said it has to be true because nobody would have invented it is because of how unique the claims of Christianity are, that, that God became a human being. Let's just start with that. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's unique. Uh, also unique are, are several things that we, we affirm when we affirm the Apostles' Creed together. That he was born of a virgin, that he suffered, that God voluntarily suffered under Pontius Pilate, a, a, um, you know, a, an ambitious uh, political leader. 
He was crucified. He died. God died. He was buried. He descended into hell. God descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. These claims are audacious, so audacious that nobody would invent them. They don't resemble other religions or philosophies. But another thing that makes Christianity unique is the kinds of demands that it makes on its adherents. You know, the passage before this one was just the warm-up on non-retaliation. It it says, uh, Jesus says there, if anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek so he can slap you on the other one. If somebody sues you and takes your tunic, and the implication is if, if they use the forces that be to do something unjust to you and take something from you that's rightfully yours, give them your cloak as well. The tunic was the undergarment. The cloak was what went over it. And so essentially he's saying be willing to, to lose the shirt off your back to somebody who demands it from you. And if somebody forces you to go one mile, then go two miles. And, and then we get to this passage, love your enemies. Um, it's what some would call a defeater belief, beliefs that defeat uh, Christianity in the eyes and hearts of those who might be considering it otherwise. Um, so I've, I've shared before about a conversation I was in a few years ago with an atheist friend of mine who was angry at God. An atheist who was angry at God. And I pushed him a little bit on this, and I I said, what's that about? How can you be angry at a God who doesn't exist? And he said, truth be told, no doubt in my mind that God exists. Truth be told, on the balance, Christianity is the most compelling expression of who God is and what God is like as far as I'm concerned. But what gets me so angry is I can't get in on it. And I said, anyone can get in on it. He said, no, you don't understand. If I become a Christian, that will mean I have to forgive my father for the things that he did to me. And I can't imagine living in that world. And, you know, conversations like this do trigger the question, does Jesus really get us? Or is he just being cruel. I mean, what kind of God, what kind of leader would put forth ideas that, that, that sound so judiciously, ju- ju- judiciously foolish and emotionally impossible, like love those who won't love you back. Love those who are committed to not loving you back. Be kind to those who are committed to hurting you. Does he get us? So I'm going to try in the next few minutes to convince all of us that, yes, he does. And it's precisely because he gets us. It's precisely because he knows that the longer we harbor resentment and bitterness, the the more we eat ourselves alive. That's the one way to, to give power to another person is to stay enraged at them. And so, this is a dynamic, enemy love, the principle of enemy love that starts 
inside the family of God, interestingly enough. And then we're meant to take it outside into the world. But we have a mighty source for both arenas, which is, which is what our final thought will be. But let's start with the first thought, and that is enemy love inside the body of Christ. And so, so there's a radical teaching about God that Jesus puts forth in, in this teaching when He says, God is kind to good people, and He's also kind to bad people. And part of how He, he showers His kindness on good people and bad people is by giving the sunshine and giving the rain to all of them. He refreshes everyone. And because God is kind to good people and evil people, I need you to understand, Jesus is saying to them and to us, you are not like God. You are far away from God because you have reduced love your neighbor as yourself to mean love people who you like and who you want to be like and then hate everybody else. Write off, discard, dismiss everybody else. And then Jesus goes on to insult them. He says, that makes you no different than Gentiles and tax collectors. And so imagine the the person or the type of person or the group that, that enrages you most in the political conversation. The talk show host that you think's an idiot. Or the politician that you think is destroying everything for everyone. Jesus is saying, you're just like that person. You're just like that group. You're no different than the very people you're committed to hate and discard. Because the Gentiles and the tax collectors, they're good to people who like them and who want to be like them. They're good to people who are just like them. Anybody can do that. That's not love. That's utilitarianism. Until there is cost and inconvenience introduced into the equation, it's not love yet. And so I'm going to call you to something higher, and then he, you know, they, they go through uh, a few years of ministry, and then we get to Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of this very gospel, where he says, look, I don't want you to just have a tolerant demeanor because tolerance is just a a form of thinly veiled hatred. I don't want you to just be polite with a fake smile on your your face, but, you know, be seething on the inside toward, toward these other people as you other them in your heart. I want you to have a vision because this is what love does. I want you to develop a vision for your enemies becoming your friends and your friends becoming your family under Christ. I want you to have a vision for yourself that you would come to love every person and every kind of person that Jesus has declared that he loves. And so, chapter 28, we get the Great Commission where he says to his disciples, I want you to go into all the world. When you start in Jerusalem, oh, that's easy. People are like us and we want to be like. Judea, oh, that's the outskirts. That's Murfreesboro. I'm, I'm not sure about Murfreesboro. That's Samaria, ooh, the Samaritans, our political enemies, the ends of the earth, the people we don't even think about because they're so far off from where we are and who we are. And then I want you to baptize them. 
that command, baptize them, that means I want you to treat them as equals. I want you to treat them as family because what baptism means is, is an invitation to be included. It's like the wedding ring that every Christian wears, like the waters of baptism. It's the covenant sign of belonging. I want you to baptize all of these types and teach them to obey. Teach them to get on board with us. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm with you always. That's the, you know, that's the exclamation point. You can't do this alone. I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's calling them to renounce the spirit of Jonah, right? God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites. And he's like, Ninevites? Those evil, hurtful, violent, upsetting people? I'm going the other way. And he runs in the other direction. And and God says, nope, I'm going to force an about face. I'm going to provide you with a fish that's going to swallow you and, and, and take you and spit you on the shore and you're going to preach to them. And, and Jonah preaches the worst sermon ever. Behold, Nineveh will burn to the ground in three days or whatever. To, amen. You know, and, and you know, like, like, all right, you want me to preach to them? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this one up for you, God. And he preaches the most idiotic, short, offensive, non-empathetic sermon. And God converts the whole city, starting with the violent king. Anne Lamott said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. In the case of Jonah, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, these are all political categories, which I don't think is a coincidence. Because it seems that in the realm of politics is where most people get most heated up and most outraged and most self-righteous and most blind to their own blind spots. Politics and the, the world of politics can, 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 can become, if, if we have humbled hearts, also an assessment tool for the condition of our hearts with respect to how on board we are or are not with the neighbor love mandate, which is actually an indicator of how on board we are with Jesus himself. So Christina Cleveland, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, says that the best way to discern your own blind spots is to get yourself into community with fellow believers whose political views are different than yours. Was that even possible? I thought to be a Christian was to be Republican. I thought to be a Christian was to be Democrat. I thought to be a Christian was to be neither nor. It's a dynamic in every city. This is where I offend you and tempt you to send me a Monday morning email. Uh, I've done this before and got Monday morning emails. I, I have a standard reply that I'm happy to give to you. I'll just copy and paste it and send it back to you. The answer is, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So that's, that's my email reply to, to any protests that would come in on this. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Repeat after me. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Thank you. That was half-hearted, but I'll take it. 
You can have two churches in two different zip codes, the same city, both churches. Every member says, we believe with all of our hearts that the Bible from beginning to end is the Word of God, inspired by God, inerrant, infallible, the only rule of faith and practice, as the good Reformed Presbyterians like to say with their lofty language and books of church order. Uh, we all embrace that. We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God and Savior of sinners. All the things. We affirm the Apostles' Creed. All the things. We are orthodox. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And on the basis of our Christian faith, 90% of the people in this church, in this, this zip code, are saying, on the basis of my Christian faith, oh, you better believe I'm going Republican. And 90% of the people in this church, in this zip code, say on the basis of my faith, you better believe I'm going Democrat. One of three things is possible. Either this group doesn't get it, doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't know how to understand Scripture, and this group does. The enlightened ones, the unenlightened ones. Or these are the enlightened ones, and these are the unenlightened ones. Or, option three, both have something meaningful to bring to the table from what they see in Scripture and what they especially see based on their social situation and their cultural location, and both have blind spots that can be, if they're humble enough, shaved away by the other group and their perspective. Welcome to the kingdom of God. You still want to be part of it? His kingdom is not Republican. It's not red state. His kingdom is not Democrat. It's not blue state. Oh, can I, that means I can't be a Republican anymore? Or Democrat? Absolutely. Be, be a Republican with all your heart, but be a Christ-like one who's willing to oppose your own party when you need to. And you want to be a Democrat, be a Democrat with all your heart but who's also willing to oppose your own party when you need to because of Jesus. Otherwise, you're just playing games. If you feel more affinity for those who share your politics but not your faith than you do with people who share your faith but not your politics, you are rendering unto Caesar what belongs to God. And that will not end well. And you will not be a happy person if you live that way. The 12 disciples give us a picture. Jesus, two of Jesus' recruits into the 12 were Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. You couldn't be more politically opposite and politically enemies than tax collectors and zealots. And somehow, some way, we have plenty of record of disputes among the disciples who are always bickering with each other, but we don't have a single record of a dispute between Simon and Matthew some kind of political conversation or debate. What we do have is that they lived together and they died together and they ministered together as brothers under Christ. We have no indication that, that, that Simon left the zealot party or that Matthew stopped being a tax collector. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But what we do have is one of the four gospel writers making sure that we know that Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot and that one gospel writer was Matthew. There's something in there for us, I think. Central to the Christian witness is mortification of the partisan spirit. 
It doesn't mean you can't align with a party. Actually, politics can be really wonderful. If it's healthy, it can be a wonderful servant of government, which is one of the, the institutions that God has established in order to bless the world. So our politics can be life-giving. They can be toxic. It's up to us. But, but the mortification of the partisan spirit, the killing of the partisan spirit is a, a decidedly Christian thing of all the posturing and the judging and the dividing. You know, Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you belong to me. You, know, you want to know what your best apologetic, what your best witness to the world is going to be? That you're one with one another. That you can love across the lines of difference under Jesus Christ in ways that people cannot do outside of Jesus Christ. And then John 17, the longest recorded prayer we have from Jesus, in which he says, Father, you gave my people to me out of the world. I in them, you in me, that they may be one. To live polite and tolerant with one another is a very small vision relative to what Jesus puts before us. And that is to love every kind of person that Jesus Christ loves. And it takes a lifetime and a lot of hard work to get there. But then we take it out into the world, right? So so part of what the church is meant to be is like a gymnasium for the soul where we get those relational workouts to equip us to love well in the neighborhood. You know, the, the, the partisan Pharisee spirit is what the world is looking for from us. The spirit that says, I'm righteous, you're not. We're good, y'all are bad. That's what the world's looking for from church folk. But that's moralism. That's not Christian citizenship. You know, the Pharisees resemble that spirit more astutely than anyone in the Scriptures. Thank you, my God, the Pharisee prayed in Luke chapter 18, that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look how virtuous I am. Look how bad they are. And then there's a tax collector in the same temple praying at the same time, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went home justified. The Pharisee went home condemned has a knowledge that puffs up, but he does not know God. The tax collector probably never read the Bible, but he knows God because he knows what the offering is that God wants most, your need, your empty hands, your desperate heart. Few things out in the world contaminate the Christian witness more than Christians who scold and point fingers and pass judgment. How many people you know said, I I became a Christian when, when a Christian or a group of Christians shamed me and scolded me for my behavior, for my lifestyle choices, etc.? Maybe those exist because sometimes the Bible says God can get a message through even through the mouth of an ass. The Bible actually says that. But it's not the normal way. You know, I've known people whose mouth is that kind of mouth. And they'll say, I believe God has called me to be a thorn in the side of the body of Christ. 
and a thorn in the side of the people out in the world. And I can tell you, if that's you, God has not called you to be that. Your untamed, unsanctified outrage and self-righteousness has called you to be that. God has not called you to be that. God has called you to love, including your enemy. But it's important in this conversation to realize that love is not a strategy. It's not a missional strategy. What's our strategy for reaching people? Well, let's love people as our strategy. Let's see if that works. No. You love and you forgive for love's sake and forgiveness' sake because that is part of what it means to enter into the enjoyment of becoming like your Father. That you may be daughters and sons of your Father in heaven, Jesus says. That you may live out the image of God that is already in you and that has sealed you and that keeps you through His love. But one of the, the, the ways that you know that your heart is moving in the direction of God-likeness is that the way you caricature other people is changing. You used to negative caricature people where, where you'd amplify their faults and you would minima, minimize the good things about them. But, but the more and more you grow in Christ and become more and more like your Father in heaven, the more you find yourself amplifying the good things that God has put in that person and minimizing and even covering over the uglier things, much like two of the three sons of Noah did for him when he got drunk, when he had a bad moment. I mean, think about it. Rahab, we, we could say, oh, Rahab, she was a prostitute. Or we could say Rahab was a woman of courage, as Hebrews 11 reminds us, who provided safe harbor for the spies of Israel as they were seeking to do the work of God. Or we could say, oh, that David, he was, he was not only an adulterer, he was a sexual predator. The text says that he saw his neighbor's wife, he sent for her, and he took her. And a murderer on top of that. We could say, well, that's him, or we could say, well, David is also the person who gave us half of the Psalms, who God chose as his instrument to teach the people of God how God wants to be prayed to. And, 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 and he also is the person that Jesus would look back and remember as the man after God's own heart, and he would call himself, Jesus would call himself the son of David. Are you ever struck by how the ancient fathers in the Bible are referred to as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which was the new name that God gave, right? Because the name Jacob is, means liar. The name Israel does not mean liar. It means something more positive and more virtuous. And, and yet, somehow, some way, he remains through history the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because God wants to be identified with sinners. God has not forsaken or given up on sinners like we do. Or we could say Mary Magdalene, oh, she's the one that was possessed by all those demons. Or we could say she was one of the handful of women named Mary who showed up at the tomb of Jesus courageously in a politically hostile climate while all the men were in hiding and then became the evangelist to the evangelist, the apostle to the apostles, by telling them the Lord is risen. Or we could remember Saul of Tarsus for, for, for being a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and a violent person, or we could remember him as the redeemed man who gave us one-third of the New Testament and taught us about grace. 
What's your choice? How are you going to caricature people? You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., speaking of, we can't do this weekend without quoting him at least once. There's a lot of good stuff in there. He said this, There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discern this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. We could also say that when we discern this, we are also more able to love them. So there's a story of two public influencers, um, and I would say that both of these men uh, have probably, in their own different ways, disturbed almost every one of us in this room. One was widely considered to be an extreme religious moralist. Another was widely considered for being a, a, a vile, secular hedonist. One was a minister. One was a pornographer. The pornographer was Larry Flint, and the minister was Jerry Falwell Sr. And the two had this public spat. Before they ever met each other in person, they, they were constantly lobbing verbal grenades at one another on talk shows and, and on news programs and in you know, newspaper articles and such. And, and one time, just to take a really you know, strong jab at Falwell, Flint uh, commissioned these derogatory cartoons in, in one of the national newspapers, uh, just basically insulting Falwell. And so Falwell responded by suing Flint for defamation of character, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and Flint won on the basis of freedom of speech. And not long after that, a talk show host named Larry King invited these two men to come on his show and meet each other for the very first time. And this very strange, unexpected thing happened when the two men walked on the set. Falwell walks toward Flint, the pastor toward the pornographer, puts his arm, arms around him in an unsolicited hug. And, and Flint is, is just kind of cringing beneath it, like wondering what's going on. And then they go their separate ways. They, they get in their chairs. They have this, what, what ends up being a very wonderfully moderated and surprisingly civil conversation that led to the two of these men going on tour all around the country, having civil dialogue between two people who used to hate each other and who are learning somehow to treat each other with respect and dignity across the lines of very significant difference. Then they started celebrating Thanksgiving together as families, uh, among other things. But when Jerry Falwell Sr. died in May of 2007, five days after an essay from Larry Flint appeared in the Los Angeles Times, and it was his eulogy of Jerry Falwell. It was a tribute, and here's an excerpt. In the years that followed our disagreements and up to his death, Jerry would come to see me every time he was in California. We'd have interesting philosophical conversations. We'd exchange personal Christmas cards. He would show me pictures of his grandchildren. The truth is the Reverend and I have a lot in common we steered our conversations away from politics, but religion was within bounds. He wanted to save me and was determined to get me out of the business. In the end, I knew what he was selling, and he knew what I was selling, and we found a way to communicate. To this day, I'm not sure if his television embrace was meant to mend fences, but the ultimate result was one I never expected and was just as shocking a turn to me as was winning that famous Supreme Court case. We 
became friends. It all started with a surprise gesture that communicates affection. You know, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and he reminds them of how their relationship began when they were far from Christ, outraged against the claims of Christ, and Paul and his companions came in to preach the gospel to them. And Paul reminds them, we didn't just come to preach to you, and we certainly didn't come to preach at you. Remember how we came to you. And he says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Notice he doesn't say, you have since become very dear to us. He says, when you were far from Christ, you became very dear to us. What's our source? Where do we get this kind of love, even affection? Our mighty source in the church and outside in the world is that God went first. We sang it in Andy's lovely, haunting song, God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still opposed to Him, while we were still outraged against Him and everything that He's about, that's when Christ died for us. We are God's chosen people, Christians are, but we are by no means God's choice people. He did not save us when we were at our best, offering Him impressive moral resumes and and records of virtue. No, He came in and rescued us and saved us when we were at our worst, when we were opposed to Him, when we were His enemies, according to what the Scriptures say, when we were prostituting ourselves against Him, when when we were pornographers of a different kind, in bed with with ambition, in bed with, with money, in bed with being right, in bed with, with deceit and lying, in bed with all sorts of things. Resisting the marriage proposal of Christ Himself. That is the time when He came to us with, with a perfectly pure, affectionate embrace. The result, our day of judgment has now been relocated from the future to the past. Jesus said it's finished. God will never harbor any outrage towards you because Jesus absorbed every bit of it that you deserved on the cross. Nothing left but love, welcome, intimacy, and pardon. You know, the chasm was chiefly moral between us and God, but it was also cultural As much as we all love and appreciate and are grateful for the part of the world in which we live and the nation that we get to be part of, the United States is wonderful, you guys. But you know, right, that the United States of America has never been the center of the Christian story. It has always been the periphery. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about in the Great Commission. We're we're talking about a Savior who was a first-century Middle Eastern, brown-skinned Jewish man who was poor all of his life, homeless for some of his life, never spoke 
a word of English, was a political refugee, was executed by the state in his early 30s, was never married. He makes room in his heart. He makes room in his family for the likes of us. If, if that is not enough to curb our outrage and, 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 and escort us into kindness and compassion toward all types of people, I'm not sure what is going to be enough. And so may Christ be enough. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we've sung it, we've read it, we've heard it, we've taught it, and now we're considering it. This, this very troubling and yet somehow strangely inspiring invitation to become a higher form of human by loving not only those who we like and want to be like, but, but also those who don't like us at all. Father, we want to love for its own sake, both our friends and our enemies. But we also want to see how you bear fruit in this remarkably countercultural way of being. And we need nourishment and we need strength. We need power from you that we don't have in ourselves to be able to start taking the first steps in that direction, in our homes, in our communities, in our places of work, and otherwise. And so nourish us with your body and your blood now. Set apart this bread and this cup. Consecrate it that we may be truly nourished in body and soul by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom we belong by grace. And this we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen.